Hey everyone, welcome to Neighbor Science, the only podcast about political economy and anime. I'm Ryan Salisbury, and today I am doing the conclusion of the Seeing Like a State book series. Uh, it's been going on for a very long time. Uh, at least it feels like a long time. Um, and uh, yeah, so this is the final episode of it. So, I mean, if you haven't listened to any of the episodes by now, uh, just start from episode one. <laughs> Uh, no use listening to this if you haven't heard the previous ones. Um, strongly, strongly recommend you go back and start at the beginning um, because you're really not going to get anything out of this, I don't think, if if you don't know what I'm talking about. So I have a couple of our previous guests who recorded some of their thoughts on the book as a whole for me, um, gave some recommendations for further reading. And I will uh, play those after I go over the conclusion chapter itself. Um, so I'm going to do that first, and then we'll hear from um, some of the guests that were on the series. Uh, so the final chapter. Um, so Scott is basically trying to wrap up everything that he's said so far. Um, he starts by comparing the faith that people had in modernizers uh, to faith in the Christian God. He says that while their plans were similar to 17th and 18th century monarchs, the greater magnitude and their promise to improve the human condition made them more appealing than those monarchs. And he said that if he had to summarize in one sentence why those efforts failed, it was because the planners believed themselves to be more intelligent and far-seeing than they actually were, and at the same time, believed their subjects to be dumber and more incompetent than they actually were. Um, so that's, I mean, that's a repeated uh, motif that we see throughout each chapter. Um, you know, obviously with the exception of, like, the forestry stuff. Um, anytime there were these grand plans to transform society. Um, it was assumed that the, the planners uh, knew what was best for everyone and anyone else was just like a, you know, backwards peasant um, stuck in their ways, um, you know, pointlessly adhering to a tradition that was now outmoded. Um, whereas in reality, tradition actually changes quite a bit um, and peasants generally were taking in new information all the time in order to improve whatever it was they were doing because otherwise they wouldn't they would not survive or thrive very well um, so the first subheading I, I don't like this title but it's called it's ignorance stupid um, in quotes so Scott begins talking about the contingency of the future on imperfect knowledge. Um, as in, we can't predict the future because we don't have knowledge of everything in the present and what it's leading to. So he gives an example of a nutrition pamphlet at his university that just recommends having a diet that's as diverse as possible based on the possibility that there are essential nutrients that are currently undiscovered. And I think he gave an example or he gave detail on that, that um, 
nutrition scientists had like recently discovered that there were more essential nutrients than they had previously thought. And that was in 1998. So maybe like phytonutrients or something is what he's talking about. But anyway. Um, So on the other hand, there are probabilistic social sciences, which despite treating potential outcomes as probabilities, still treats those probabilities as – yeah, I think uh, treats those outcomes as facts and do not permit the possibility of the unknown. So, like, each probability is, like, the observed reality of the situation and that's because of, like, some fixed rules and is not going to change. Um, like, an example of that that I can think of is, like, price elasticity, which is – an economic thing. Um, basically it's this like, uh, multiple, you know, zero to whatever, um, that describes like for every increase in, uh, supply, the price goes up by this much, or for every increase in demand, the price goes down by this much or whatever. Um, that's backwards, but you get what I'm saying. Um, and, that elasticity is treated as like that that's what it is it's like an inherent property of the of the good and um property that it's observing so like the price elasticity of demand of computers is you know 0.45 and and that's it it doesn't change it's not like that's what you observed which is contingent on the social conditions um culture types of computers that are available and so on and so forth that that's just like a property of um computers the price elasticity of demand of computers that it's a property of of computers um and i that's what he's saying basically that these are like probabilistic but they're still treated as facts and not something that could change in the future um, and he says further still, uh, in this category are historical studies, which treats outcome as facts. Um, so like world war one is a fact, um, it's an outcome of historical forces, but it's, it also like definitely would have happened, um, according to this type of, uh, history. It's not something that like could have been avoided maybe. Um, maybe World War One isn't the best example, but you, you know what I'm saying. Like, the outcomes of history are things that definitely would have happened no matter what, and not like outcomes that were contingent on things that were happening at the time that could have turned out a different way. Um, of course the the problem with all that is it's very hard to come up with like alternatives. Like, you can't really study counterfactuals, you know, like, um, it, you can't really come up with a scientific study of counterfactuals. It's, it just doesn't seem like in the realm of possibility. Um, so Scott agrees with Kropotkin and Hayek, uh, two names that you wouldn't think would be in the same sentence, uh, that planning for the future is more or less impossible, 
even if you're able to guess the immediate conditions and immediate consequences of an intervention, there are second and third order effects that are impossible to foresee, as well as human and natural events outside one's models, droughts, wars, revolts, epidemics, interest rates, world consumer prices, oil embargoes, and interaction effects between all of these things. Um, so not only is there unknown information, the conditions are so multivariate and complex that it would be impossible to really come up with a, a good prediction of a given intervention. Um, so Scott attempts to give some ways to prevent ca- uh, the catastrophic changes that he listed, uh, that he described in the book. Number one is take small steps. Number two is favor reversibility, especially in ecosystems. Number three is plan on surprises. And number four is plan on human inventiveness. Um, which, you know, we've been wondering through this series uh, why Scott is a Warren person. And I think this might be the key to it is especially number one is take small steps. Um, I think that probably explains it. You know, we can't have a revolution. You can only have minor reforms that take time. Um, the next section is planning for abstract citizens. It's very short. Um, while the high modernist planners had intended to benefit the state subjects whose lives they were changing, these subjects were little more than standardized abstract citizens in their plans. This was not an oversight. It was a prerequisite for their large scale plans to exist. Um, so he's saying, like, you have to treat people as, like, abstract units with little differentiation between them in order to come up with a large-scale plan that, uh, you know, changes the lives, like, radically changes the lives of all those people. Because otherwise it would just be impossible to come up with a plan. There's just too many little differences between all of them. Um, Scott says these plans usually involve single-quantity metrics, which are okay until they become hegemonic. Which is, uh, that's Goodhart's law again, um, is what he's describing. The metric that becomes a rule ceases to become useful as a metric. Um, and as I always say, you know, all metrics become rules <laughs> and, and therefore cease to become useful as metrics. So all metrics are useless by the transitive property. Um, the most characteristic quality of high modernist schemes, however, is, quote, how little confidence they repose in the skills, intelligence, and experience of ordinary people. Um, so, I mean, if – I guess it's kind of like a definitional thing. Like, if they had confidence in people, then they wouldn't be high modernist schemes because they wouldn't be trying to radically – like, force radical changes on their lives um, with no regard to what – they want or think. Um, so that's it for that section. Uh, the next one is called stripping reality to its essentials. Um, and I start here with a quote, the clarity of the high modernist optic is due to its resolute singularity. It's simplifying fiction is that for any activity or process that comes under its scrutiny, there is only one thing going on. I think it's a little confusingly written. At least I didn't get it like the very first time I read it. Um, he's basically saying like 
the high modernist view is so focused on their own plans for whatever it is they're trying to change that they just ignore any other uh, possibility or characteristic or outcome than the ones that they're concerned with specifically. So, and in order to have those plans, they kind of have to ignore all those alternative things. Like the example for agriculture is like calories per, you know, acre or whatever. There are obviously other uses for crops than calories, but in order to create like a large scale grain farm that produce that has you know as high of, of a bureaucratically measurable productivity as possible you have to reduce it to something like calories per acre if you don't reduce it to a single measure then that means you're accepting that there are alternative concerns um that may also be important like i mean the Leftover plant from harvesting wheat is turned into straw, which is used for like a lot of different things. Um, it can be used for fuel, uh, fodder, rope, um, all sorts of things. And how do you how do you balance each outcome in a way that is like measurable on like a chart. If a bureaucrat were to compare two farms and one was producing like a hundred thousand calories per acre, I don't know what a good number is. It's probably not right at all, but just for, for imagination's sake, a hundred thousand calories per acre on farm a, um, but they're, you know, producing like one ton of straw versus farm B is producing 80,000 calories per acre, but they're producing one and a half tons of straw. How do you know which one is better? Um, Especially if you don't really know what that straw is used for, uh, because either it's just being sold as straw to whoever, uh, or you're just like not that much of an expert in supply chains and industry to know like, uh, what is a good amount of straw versus a good amount of calories to produce? So you you either have to rely on this judgment of which of these products are most important, which of course can change over time um, and depend on seasonal conditions or other farms. Or do you just like measure, you just collapse it to calories per acre and call it a day and, you know, be able to make yourself look good because you say, you say like, oh yeah, farms are producing this many more calories per day because of me and my efforts. Um, it's a lot easier to explain that to someone in charge of you than it is to s- explain like, yes, uh, they are producing slightly le- fewer calories per acre, but they're also producing uh, more like this many more tons of fiber per acre. And here's why that's a good trade-off. That's basically what he's saying. And I think he actually illustrates it a little better than I did. I just forgot that he does this. So Scott describes 
two possible maps of a road within a community. One that imagines the flow of traffic along along the road from A to B, and one that is a time-lapse illustration of all of the unplanned activities that might happen between A and B. He says that the book has illustrated that the first map, taken alone, is misrepresentative and non-sustainable. Um, he also has a, uh, a bit here about the Soviet Kolkhoz. He says, The Soviet Kolkhoz hardly lived up to its expectations, but by treating its workforce more like factory hands than farmers, it did destroy many of the agricultural skills the peasantry had possessed on the eve of collectivization. Even if there was much in the earlier arrangements that ought to have been abolished, local tyrannies based on class, gender, age, and lineage, a certain institutional autonomy was abolished as well. Here, I believe there is something to the classical anarchist claim that the state, with its positive law and central institutions, undermines individuals' capacities for autonomous self-governance that might apply to planning grids of high modernism as well. So he's basically saying here that despite there being problems with the peasant farms that the Kolkhozi replaced, anarchists who criticized them for – or who criticized the state – for its elimination of autonomy, self-governance, and um, you know, personal ability, would probably also apply to something like like a cold cause as well, because by treating the workers like factory hands, it pulled all of the skills of managing a farm into the hands of experts. At least that was his, its intent. And by doing so, it basically eliminated their power and removed their autonomy. Um, so even if land were given back to the Kolkhozniki, um, because they had been de-skilled by the process of transforming farms into Kolkhoz or Kolkhozi, they wouldn't have the level of autonomy that they did prior to the collectivization because they they just don't have those skills anymore. So they would either have to rely on experts or they would have to to redevelop those skills. And so obviously, like in the former case, that would keep the hierarchy intact. Um, And in the latter case, you know, it could result in some degree of suffering until they figure out how to um, redevelop those skills, which could be generations, you know. Um, So the the penultimate section is called The Failure of Schematics and the Role of Metis. And he says, when the Soviet Union began to fall, there was discussion about what to do with the Kolkazi. Many thought they should be privatized and hoped to revive what existed prior to the 30s. Um, Some despaired over the loss of knowledge, skill, and initiative among the Kolkosniki. However, one woman in this discussion interjected by saying, the only reason rural people were able to survive those 60 years was their wits and initiative, and that what they really lacked was credit and supplies. Um, So she's kind of pushing back on what I was just talking about, where... Um, a lot of this de-skilling happened. Um, although it only says wits and initiative. It doesn't say skills. So maybe she did acknowledge that um, skills were lost. But 
she is saying that the former peasants, um, current Kolkosniki, or I guess former Kolkosniki as well, um, had the wits and initiative to rebuild their former uh, autonomous farm arrangement. And what the reason that they are not successful currently is because basically because of state rationing. Scott also talks about a case study from two East German factories, both of which were under a significant pressure to meet certain quotas, but lacked the quality of machinery, raw materials, and spare parts to do so. The factories were able to meet the quotas because of two types of employee that were at, at both of them. Um, and also at a lot of other jobs. Um, one was the jack of all trades, which can who can fix all the machines, stretch the raw materials out, correct or conceal production flaws. Um, and the other type of employee was the wheeler dealer, who traded for spare parts, machinery, and raw material that could not be obtained officially. Um, I definitely had we had both of those types of employees at uh, coffee shops that I worked at because we were always like running out of supplies. So there was always someone who would um, know people at other stores who would, you know, trade cups or syrups or whatever um, for whatever they needed. And uh, there was also someone who could, you know, rig the, any machines that were not very good to work correctly. So I'm sure that a lot of people listening have, seen this these two types of employee personally um and so scott also says to facilitate the trade that the wheeler dealer uh took part in for these factories the factories would stock up on soap cosmetics quality paper yarn good wine medicines and fashionable clothing um so we didn't we didn't have to do that um but i guess if you're dealing with a factory some of the stuff you need is probably quite a bit more substantial than a couple packs of cups or some bottles of syrup. So finally, Scott says something about business. I feel like he hasn't really said hardly anything about business, if anything at all. I can't really think of anything offhand. But um, so he says, this analysis of high modernism then may appear to be a case for the invisible hand of market coordination as opposed to centralized economies. An important caution, however, is in order. The market is itself an instituted formal system of coordination, despite the elbow room that it provides to its participants, and it is therefore similarly dependent on a larger system of social relations, which its own calculus does not acknowledge, and which it can neither create nor maintain. Here, I have not only the obvious elements of contract and property law, as well as the state's coercive power to enforce them, but antecedent patterns and norms of social trust, community, and cooperation, without which market exchange is inconceivable. And I mean, I would add like totalizing control of resources that basically force people to deal with business instead of like doing things themselves. Because I I think if given a real meaningful choice, uh, people would rather not deal with business because uh, it basically <laughs> depends on a large forced labor system that um, transforms hours of human life uh in, from larger amounts into smaller amounts through the money money system that it uses. So, I, yeah, I wish he had gone more into business. Um, maybe that's something that I can tackle on a later episode. But 
Yeah, so that's that's what he says about business. Kind of uh, kind of liberal there, if you ask me. So he also notes once again that in large formal systems, there are always apparent anomalies that turn out to be integral to the maintenance of the formal order. And he's, again, um, well, not again, but he is uh, including business in that. I guess there is one thing that he did mention about business, sort of, which is like the work-to-rule strike. So that was something. But uh, I like I wish there was a section on prices. But I think prices are mystified for most people, including most academics. So I don't know how good that would be anyway. So the last section is called A Case for Medis Friendly Institutions. So Scott gives some uh, caveats, some caveats to the case against high modernist in- interventions he describes throughout the book. The... Uh, number one, the social orders they were designed to supplant were typically so manifestly unjust and oppressive that almost any new order might seem preferable, which, I mean, sure, but what replaced them was worse <laughs> in most cases. Uh, so number two, high modernist social engineering usually came cloaked in egalitarian emancipatory ideas, which I think most social engineering does. Well, maybe that's not true. Uh, number three is where functioning representative institutions were at hand, some accommodation was inevitable. Um, so he's basically saying, like, if there was any sort of democracy or anything like that, um, they would have been less less oppressive. Number four, given sufficient time and leeway, any high modernist plan will be utterly remade remade by popular practice. Oh, and I, I wrote that um, he says he's going to give four caveats and then he names number one and number two. And then he just like sort of writes a couple paragraphs without saying like, this is number three and this is number four. So, uh, those, those last two, I'm guessing that those are the caveats that he means, but they are just sort of like written into paragraphs. So it's, it's hard to tell. Um, so Scott wants to make a case for institutions that are instead multifunctional, plastic, diverse, and adaptable. In other words, institutions that are powerfully shaped by Midas. Yeah, I don't have much comment on that. Uh, he goes on to talk about the importance of resilience, giving the example of the Soviet steel-making jewel of Magnitogorsk, which was vulnerable to the supersession of its key technology of steel. Um. A more relevant example to us might be Detroit or Flint and their dependence on the auto industry and how once the auto industry sort of failed, but not really because they were bailed out. I still don't really understand what happened with that. But the you know the cities collapsed because a bunch of people got laid off and stuff, and that was their overwhelmingly main source of livelihood in those cities. So cities with a more diverse set of industries would have been able to weather a crisis like the collapse of the auto industry more easily. So something like New York, where there's more than just finance, there's some other stuff too, probably. I don't know. Um, But also finance will never really fail, truly. Um, It was better able to weather the subprime mortgage crisis because a lot of people worked outside of the finance industry. And, yeah, the last thing is he starts on some extremely white shit about Thomas Jefferson and democracy, blah, blah, blah. I'm not reading that. Another big section about the Vietnam War Memorial being well made. Can't make me read that either. 
So his conclusion is basically that our institutions should adapt to changing conditions and the variety of preferences and characteristics of the people that are affected by them. Uh, the best example of this is language, which, as he says, has a structure of meaning and continuity that is never still and ever open to the improvisations of all its speakers. So uh, that is the end of Seeing Like a State. Thank you so much for listening to uh, everything that I've put out about it so far, uh, assuming that you listen to all of it. If you didn't, then no thank you. Go away. I don't want anything to do with you. Um, I will give my own thoughts on Seeing Like a State. First of all, I think it's an indispensable book to read, even if the conclusions are, you know, Warren Democrat stuff. The case studies and the principles that he comes away with about how states are limited both in their um, knowledge and, like, realm of possibility of interventions um, that, you know, upend the social fabric. Um, I think those are extremely important to know. I think it's good to look at um, some of the socialist efforts of the 20th century with scrutiny over, how, like, first of all, how similar they were to the capitalist interventions of the same period, um, thinking of both the Soviet Union and Tanzania, um, like how the Soviet Kolkazi were basically plantations and the Tanzanian interventions were supported by the World Bank and, um, you know, Western developmental institutions. It's one of those things that you start to see everywhere where, um, like, for example, people are <laughs> defending the Belt and Road Initiative because, oh, well, it's not. It's not colonial or neocolonial. It's uh, there. It's development, but I mean that's development is like the whole thing that um, we went over in this book. It's it's all statecraft shit. Um, it basically takes agency out of the hands of the people, for lack of a better term, um, the peasantry, whatever you want to call it, and puts it into the hands of statesmen and experts and people with. Um, in interests that conflict with the best interests of the people themselves. I like. I really liked the point he made about the soci the sociology of the vanguard and how their interests are like. Even if they start off being aligned with the interests of the working class, because they also have their own interests by way of being part of this group, the vanguard those interests will clash with those of the working class and eventually lead to, you know, if the vanguard is in control of everything, <laughs> the vanguard will get their way and the working class will suffer as a result. The, the bits about the similarity of the state institutions, I wish he had gone into more detail about that. Um, obviously, it would have been hard because this book is quite long already. And that's like a little bit outside of the thesis there, but that might be something that I 
go further into uh, myself on this show. And again, another thing that I want to go into more depth with is how this uh, framework of um, bureaucrats having limited information and sort of being forced to um, ignore relevant details in order to come up with these like quantitative plans or these metrics um, that are you know useful to them or justify their position to their superiors, um, how these are similar to prices um, and other capitalist metrics that are not normally thought of as like part of the state, but that I have been talking about as being part of the state for quite a long time now. I actually did start to integrate that into my thinking like prior to reading this book because I heard like a uh, a synoptic version of of the book, which is that it's about um, legibility and how you know information has to be uh, transformed into a form that is useful to bureaucrats. Um, so that's sort of something that I was able to work with just by the the brief summary version. But this does give quite a few details about it. Another thing is there's so many good references here that uh, anything that remotely interested you as a topic in this book uh, could be its own rabbit hole for, starting from that reference um, or those references because a lot of them have like a lot, you know. So that would be a good way to read this book. You know, what, once you get to a part that you're interested in, you can put it down, look at the – or well, I guess you have to look at the end note first and then put it down. But uh, – Check the reference um, and, and continue from there. Look at the references that they work from or, um, you know, learn specific terms or subfields in that field of inquiry and uh, look further into that. I did that a little bit with this book, but obviously since I was trying to create a um, weekly or, or biweekly uh, episode, I had to focus more on the chapters, but going forward, I might go back to the references and, um, you know, go down one of those rabbit holes. I also highly recommend Scott's other popular book against the grain. Um, I read that and I, I don't think I ever did an episode about it because not many people had read it at the time that I was interested in doing an episode. Um, but maybe I'll do that in the future as well. Oh, another uh, recommendation. I know I've made it on the show before, but maybe you haven't heard it as of yet. But uh, Myth of the Machine by Lewis Mumford. Highly recommend that. Capitalist Power, I think, um, includes some of this information, but not a ton. But I mean, it it does basically talk about like the capitalist synoptic measure of progress, which is capitalization. And that's like the, one of the main focuses of capitalist power. Um, so I guess you could say it was either influenced by this book or it's on the same subject. Um, I think it came out like 10 years later or five years later. So it, it's possible that it was influenced by that, but um, yeah, if, if you're interested in the business aspect of um synoptic views 
check out Capitalist Power. And um, yeah, I, I think that'll do it. Um, I've been rambling for quite a bit now, and my voice is getting weak. So um, I will let my three guests speak for themselves. All right, this is the Anarchist Arborist, also Mathman Sam, or Sam, probably best. Uh, and I'm writing for Ryan's Seeing Like a State podcast, the final episode. I figured I'll just talk about some related texts, because I think that that's something that's very useful when you're reading a text, is to sort of find places where you can learn more about what the text is talking about. Uh, so I'm going to start with Foucault. Um, Michel Foucault is a thinker who he who Scott mentions in the opening of the book, I think in the first section. And part of why Foucault is so useful for this is his genealogical critique, which is um, sort of that detailed analysis that, that you go through to, to discover the root of a concept in particular. But uh, Scott uses it to understand how statecraft has, has developed over the years under, under these sort of, in these sort of periods of time. Um, if, uh, but also very useful for, through Foucault is Foucault's understanding in particular of discipline. So the text for this is pretty clearly Foucault's discipline and punish. And, uh, it's very useful for sort of understanding how and why these, um, how these sort of regimentation also occurred, not just to streets, trees, um, towns, but also to people themselves, right? Uh, Foucault discusses how like minute parts of the actions are, are um, sort of regimented and, and put into tables, right? And so Foucault's Discipline and Punish is good for that. Uh, in another text... Foucault discusses how a state is necessarily racist. I'm not sure which text that is, but the place where I've seen it referenced is in Falguni Sheth's uh, Towards a Political Philosophy of Race, which is the second text that I'm going to bring up. In this one, uh, Sheth talks about how race in the U.S. is formed, and in particular, she's discussing uh Asian race, not not blackness, because she feels that that's been not sufficiently explored, but she wants to explore an area that hasn't been explored to the same extent. And so it covers a lot of very interesting topics about how race is constructed by the state in, in service of making a population more legible, right? Uh, it's playing off of Foucault's idea that, that you need to split the population into criminals and non-criminals, right? And so that division becomes racialized pretty clearly. Um, another off, I shouldn't say offshoot, but another person who's related to Foucault, who's very good for this, is a fellow by the name of Gilles de, Gilles, Gilles de Luz. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Uh, Deleuze is a fascinating thinker on his own, a very difficult thinker as well. So I'm going to recommend the Todd May book, uh, Gilles Deleuze in, in Introduction. Um, 
And in fact, he actually talks about the Jacobs, uh, Janice, I think her name is Janice Jacobs, the critic of high modernist city planning. She actually talks about that in the final section of the book. And Deleuze is really useful because it provides a way, uh, Deleuze's concept of the state is really useful here, is the big thing, because Deleuze's concept of the state is particularly about finding what are called um, molar lines. Don't worry too much about what that means. Uh, are is finding these sort of concrete things and making them, and the state acts as a resonating chamber for them. Uh, it's complicated, and I have around 10 minutes for this, so I can't quite explain that because that could take up like a podcast of its own. So instead, we're just going to leave it at his concept of the state works really well for this. Um, moving on to a sort of another collection of, of, of related thinkers. Uh, the Capital as Power Project, which I'm certain all of you are probably well familiar with, considering that you're listening to Ryan's podcast, uh, is also going to be highly useful for this because instead of uh, doing the Marxian method of focusing on um, production, it's a shift to focusing on control. And exercising control effectively involves understanding what the, what the thing you're trying to control is doing, right? You need to have that feedback loop. And so the Capitalist Power Project specifically involves the production of legibility as part of that sabotage, right? Um, I could, there are some fascinating examples I could give, but don't have time. But the, um, in particular, they get this from uh, Thornstein Veblen and his his stuff about the uh, his division between business and industry, and in particular the idea of sabotage. Right, so business and industry are separate, um, and business gains money from industry by so by strategic sabotage, which is they're not trying to do the most sabotage possible; they're trying to sabotage it in an optimal way as to generate revenue, right? Uh, a perfect example of this that is quite important for the modern day is uh, IP laws, where right now there is a massive set of sabotage on of by business, those large pharmaceutical companies, on industry, uh, which would be these plants that can produce vaccines in, say, India or in certain parts of Africa or in China, or I'm not sure about China, um, but but in these sort of more impoverished areas. But they can't produce it because they don't have IP and they also don't have um, free flow of information. But production could be massively increased if that IP was shared freely. And so that's a perfect classical example of the um, of what Veblen would call strategic sabotage. And you, you can see how legibility is, is sort of a form of that sort of sabotage. Um, the one that I think might be the most unusual for me to bring up is uh, Guy Debord. Guy Debord was a... Uh, I guess sort of like the first ultra left French thinker 
might be the best. Actually, I don't know if he was the first, but he was certainly an early ultra-left French thinker. And this is getting into sort of the broader ultra-left movement, which includes, say, Chuang, uh, the Chinese collective, um, Endnotes, which I think is an English collective, though it might be Greek, and um, Alfben, which is a British collective. Uh, so those three, and but but in particular, Guy Debord's idea of the spectacle. The the spectacle is kind of legibility brought to an extreme extent to me. It uh, the spectacle is the it. Debord never really defines it, but a major part of the spectacle is that it it is. It's spectatorship, it's observing things, seeing spectacular events instead of actually doing them, right? So instead of actually going on vacation, you watch somebody else go on vacation via social media. Now, DeBoard roots this in uh, an understanding of commodity fetishism through Marx, and but I also think that you could probably root parts of it through ideas of um, legibility of sort of legibility of spectator populations for capitalist media companies, right? Um, in order to make a YouTube video legible, it needs to have metadata attached to it, right? And so that metadata needs to be in a certain form. It'll be like length, how much, uh, watch time, um, those tags that you can add on, right? And so those are all parts of making a slurry of ones and zeros legible to an algorithm that can then use that as input to tailor it into something new, right? And then this ends up having emergent properties like the uh, alt, like um, that radicalization spiral that you can see in um, various papers, right? And so I really think that ideas of legibility, even though they are underapplied in seeing like a state to capitalist enterprises, I think that a very fruitful area that we can possibly work with is how do capitalist enterprises need to render certain things legible? Those things can be anything from the consumer base uh, to the products themselves, which take note, those two things are kind of linked for media, right? Like the consumer base of a, say, a television channel is the same as the product of that television channel for advertisers, the actual source of revenue. And so you end up with this double motion that's probably very interesting to look at. But I am completely out of time. Uh, So... Bye-bye. Hope you like everybody else's contributions. Have a good day. Um, I'm Nate. I'm uh, at the Radical Left on Twitter. That's uh, Radical spelled R-A-D-I-C-L-E. I'm co-host of the Works in Theory podcast, which is a podcast where we read theory books and explain them and break them down into sort of understandable language. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. I'm a farmer and a social ecologist. One thing that I really love about this book, Seeing Like a State, is, uh, and I think this is sort of a, a quality that all good books have, is that once you read it and you sort of like understand the logic of uh, of these like simplifying systems he's describing, you kind of just start to see it everywhere in your life. Um, like, I, just a silly example, but recently my uh, fiance's like work reorganized the way that the the hospital is run, like based on the units and stuff. And hearing her describe it to me, uh, it, I just like sort of clicked. I was like, wow, this is uh, they're organizing this to be more legible to the people at the top, basically. Like I see exactly how this is like making each of the individual disciplines, you know, sort of interchangeable so that you can sort of just check a box, treatment given, treatment not given. And I guess the the lessons that you get out of this book is uh, kind of just rediscovering lessons that ecological science has known for a while. Uh, he, you know, talks about this specifically in a couple places, but just the idea of like complexity and variety being and diversity being in and of themselves good and like conferring that sort of stability onto onto systems as opposed to the sort of drive towards simplification that we see especially nowadays i think that you know with what is referred to colloquially as like the neoliberal era i see i think we have sort of seen this uh principles that he discusses in this book most elevated to like a religion uh, you know uh, sort of technocrats constantly mistaking the map for the territory. Um, I think that's the the main lesson to glean from this book is sort of one of humility. Um, he talks about, and I think he overstates it, but he's right to some extent that we always have to like be simplifying and abstracting if we're trying to accomplish something. That the world is infinitely various and it would just be impossible to try to accommodate every single factor. But where we sort of go wrong, and I think, like I said, this is especially the case nowadays, is when we start mistaking those abstractions for reality itself. And that's where things start to go really bad. And this whole sort of idea of abstracting reality to like simplified systems, I see as, as having grown out of, I think I may have discussed this a little bit on the first episode I was on, but having grown out of the sort of scientific revolution at the at the beginning of the modern era, where we started discovering things like the laws of physics or the laws of chemistry, and because these were highly religious people th- discovering these things, it was sort of like they conceived it almost as if you know, God had made the world legible in this way that there were going to be these sort of algorithms or systems that a human mind would conceive of that would explain eventually everything. To some extent, we still believe this. Um, like I said, it's it's almost like the religion of scientism nowadays is is this idea that like everything can be quantified, everything can be broken down into like an algorithm that can explain every extant circumstance. But of course, we now know um, first of all that this doesn't apply to social systems. Uh, obviously, this whole book is just a, cat- a catalog of discovering that you can't uh, sort of simplify social systems into, um, I keep using the term, like an algorithm. You know, you can't like squeeze infinite complexity of human society into like the cells of a spreadsheet. Um, And in fact, we also even know nowadays that sort of the 
what we thought of as like the immutable laws of physics aren't even exactly immutable and that there are things going on that are beyond our understanding. And so I think, as I said, the the general moral of the story here is is to be uh, humble, to like always assume that there is something outside of our schema that might affect it. And of course, like in my mind, what that inevitably, like the conclusion that inevitably leads to is that uh, things have to be as uh, constituted as possible, as like local and democratic as possible, so that every possible outcome is sort of accounted for. Um, do you have any recommendations for books on ecology? Uh, for books on ecology, uh, I think that probably the best would be um, Restoration Agriculture. Um, Mark Shepard. It's like, uh, yeah, it's it's it maybe not is it's maybe not obviously related to this, but he talks a lot about the polycropping dangers of of like simplified systems and and again the uh, inherent benefits of diversity. If you're into something maybe a little uh, more, I don't know, lyrical uh, than strictly scientific, uh, he cites out of Leopold in the conclusion here. And uh, his Sand County Almanac is just like one of the best, uh, I guess, most like love letters to a local ecology that I've ever read. And he is considered the sort of father of conservation science. Um, he had that quote in uh, in seeing like a state, which is that the first rule of intelligent tinkering is to keep all of the pieces. Referring to you know the idea that you can't just excise something from an ecosystem and assume it's not needed. But yeah, Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac, Mark Shepard's Restoration Agriculture. Um, I think I mentioned this in the, the first episode I was on, but uh, if you haven't read um, Caliban and the Witch, I'd highly recommend it. Uh, it sort of details this process of like rationalization and simplification as it occurred at the sort of dawn of the capitalist era. I, I mentioned briefly, but it's been known to ecosystem science for a long time that uh, that like diversity is an inherent good. That like the more diverse a system is, the more stable it is, and that it's a, a diversity of functions as well as of species. Right, so it's like the exact opposite of what a like a simplified state planner would want. It's like you got to have multiple species filling multiple functions and multiple functions filled by each species. And um, this is, for instance make a prediction right here that if we ever <laughs> go with this scheme of trying to replace uh, pollinators with like robot bees, it's going to be uh, just absolute catastrophe because it's sort of imagining that the bee has like a single function, which is to carry pollen between food crops, right? But you know, eliminate bees and replace them with robots. We're going to suddenly discover that they were filling many more functions in an ecosystem than we originally thought. Hey folks, Tura here. I was on a bit ago to discuss chapters three and four of the book. To close out, I want to talk about the value of the book as an introductory work for normies. For your liberal friends who recognize that there's a lot wrong in the world, but have a reformist attitude, or otherwise trust centralized power structures to fix things. Maybe you've got a friend who believes in social democracy and likes the idea of, say, Canada's structure or the Scandinavian model. Maybe they believe in a workers' party that would take control through electoral means and then implement sweeping reforms and all our lives would be improved. 
Maybe they're far enough along to believe that electoralism isn't a viable option and think that we need a revolution to overthrow the current order, but then want to install a powerful centralized party or elite council of the most competent people to seize the state apparatus and direct the future society. All of these perspectives share a common theme of trust in state schemes to actually succeed at meeting their goals, even if people recognize that bureaucratic government programs are often terrible, inefficient messes. They often just conclude that those failures are mainly due to external factors, legal and regulatory obstacles, political opposition, and so on. If that's the case, then the solution isn't to move away from centralized structures, but to reduce obstacles to them working. You see that in variously phrased pushes to cut through the red tape. And I think it's ultimately the same motivation whether the solution being argued for is the privatization of government functions into corporate hands or increasing the power and influence of government bodies pushing towards dictatorial powers for a preferred political party. Seeing like a state does a really good job of showing why abstractly planned, centralized schemes fail to meet their goals, and why they cannot succeed regardless of good intentions, even when all the obstacles to their success are swept away. You know, wipe the plateau clean, clear the existing ecology or the original city, provide infinite funding for the grandest high-modernist urban plan to be realized in full, and the city that results will be dead and inhuman. Give the party complete power to mechanize industry and agriculture across the entire country, And you'll have miserable, alienated workers who can't even produce at the level of the previously existing workshops and small farms. The same holds true if you hand the project off to corporate hands. Though really, corporations are better viewed as part of the state than distinct from it. The distinction's irrelevant here in any case. It's the centrally planned nature of the project that's the problem that causes it to demand legibility and simplification. No matter who's doing the seeing, these features all but guarantee that the plan fails to succeed in bringing about the positive social transformation that it was aiming at. The projects instead tend to cause massive harm to human life and culture, as legibility demands conformity and compliance. The state project may never properly succeed at its goals, but it will succeed in killing, destroying, and exerting every possible control over people and the environment in the effort. So, let's say you've got yourself a liberal friend, who sees a lot of the same problems you do, but doesn't have much background in libertarian socialist ideas. They don't really see why you wouldn't just go out and canvas for Bernie Sanders, but they're willing to have a closer look, and they ask you for a book recommendation. I've seen a lot of intro works recommended from different communities, and I'll talk about a couple more of those in a bit, but I'm really leaning towards seeing like a state these days as a first recommendation. I wouldn't have thought that starting with industrial forestry would be interesting, but it's a great way to see a legibility scheme in action, showing how planning from above requires you to simplify and reduce everything down to the planner's map. Then the next chapter ties together a ton of related schemes and shows how thoroughly these schemes affect every element of our lives, from how we live, to our names, to the numbers we use to count. I thought these sections were interesting, but really it's the following chapters about the implementation of high modernism and the relation of legibility schemes to failed utopian projects that I think is most valuable. So let's assume your friend doesn't have much education in history or politics, beyond vague memories of what was taught in high school. If they're from the U.S., they probably can't find Afghanistan on a map. They think the civil rights movement was about strict pacifism and changing the minds of elected officials, and they've probably never even heard the word haymarket. And what does this hypothetical friend know about communism? Probably that it's evil, takes away all your food, and that it lost the Cold War. How about socialism? Depends who they listen to, I guess, but they probably think it's either the same as and just as evil as communism, or they think it's when the government does stuff. For someone with little to no background to work with, seeing like a state is really quite excellent. The book gives a very approachable overview to the Russian Revolution, how the Bolsheviks came to power, and the ways that Americans shared a similar ideology in many respects, admiring and working off Soviet examples in urbanization and agricultural planning. 
Lenin is roundly criticized, but he's criticized not as an agent of the shadowy cabal of Marxists controlling the world, but for practicing many of the ideas that your friend probably believes would work too. Ideas about just giving power to the right people, removing obstacles, and allowing them to use the best scientific knowledge available to improve the world. The book also introduces Rosa Luxemburg as a critical foil, but makes it clear that she's also a Marxist and a committed revolutionary in her own right. Scott doesn't sell that as a bad thing, which is kind of interesting, because he seems to be quite the liberal himself, but you can see how that would be a valuable perspective that would seem balanced for someone new to these topics. The chapters about Tanzania and industrial agriculture are more refutations of the idea that central planning, science, and technology can resolve all our ills, and those problems can't just be blamed on the folly of the bad communists. These grand transformation projects are doomed to fail, to be unable to predict the future and account for the contingencies. Seen like a state does a better job of showing this than most other works that I've seen. If we just planned better, had more accurate information, had better and more efficient technology, and enough funding to put the plan into action, we still wouldn't be able to get past the environmental details and human elements lowered down. The world just isn't that simple, no matter how much we try to simplify it. So yeah, I think this book is a great introduction to these topics. I've read a good number of anarchist works at this point, but coming from a sort of social democratic background originally, I would have liked to have read this book a lot sooner to address those old thoughts of why not just be like Denmark. That said, the book isn't really an anarchist text, and it doesn't give an anarchist alternative to the problems provided, so here's a few more recommendations for where to go next. For a general introduction to anarchism broadly, I'd recommend Peter Gelderloo's Anarchy Works. It's a very approachable work written by a writer who's still alive and has a lot of applications of theory to contexts and historical events that modern readers will be familiar with. If you want some classical anarchism in your diet, check out some writing by Errico Malatesta. He has two works in particular, An Anarchist Program and Anarchy, which are both short and should be read together. And if you liked your first taste of Malatesta and want more, pick up The Method of Freedom, which is a really thorough anthology of his work over the course of his entire life. If you like to learn ideas through learning history, try Davide Torcato's Making Sense of Anarchism. He's the same author who collected the works in The Method of Freedom, too. Making Sense of Anarchism is a really well-written biography of Malatesta, who lived a very interesting life. He went all over the world supporting insurrections and revolutionary activity, and was constantly in and out of exile. It shows how his ideas developed with, and diverged from, his contemporaries, and also calls out Marxists for doing a really bad job of reading anarchists. The book's just really good, one of the most enjoyable texts I've read recently. Several parts of Seeing Like a State talked about how planning and technology won't fix everything. That makes the book an interesting first step for getting into anti- and post-civilization ideas. If we agree that just throwing technology at a state project won't prevent climate collapse or solve the problems of worldwide supply chains for commodity production and heavy industry, then what's next? What can we do? And what does an actually sustainable future look like? For some intro texts in that vein, check out Post-Civ, a brief philosophical and political introduction to the concept of post-civilization by Strangers in a Tangled Wilderness, or Desert, which is published anonymously. This is an area that I'm particularly interested in, and while I really like the classics and social anarchist texts generally, I wish more baby anarchists would read both. These works also show why we should break away from Marxists who want to progress through economic stages and develop the productive forces. Lastly, I've seen one other non-anarchist book recommended alongside Seeing Like a State as a primer to libertarian socialist thinking, Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. It's short, and it does a great job of showing why fundamental change needs to come from the oppressed, from the subjugated members of a society. 
And I recommend that you send this one to any of your white friends who talk about wanting to organize the black community or any community that they themselves aren't integrated in and a part of. Be warned that it uses a fair bit of academic language and can be a bit hard to get into, but it is very good. And that's about it. That's all I've got. I really like and recommend Seeing Like a State, and I wanted to thank Ryan for giving me the opportunity to come and chat. Hey, everyone. Anarch here. Or Daniel, I guess. I was asked to say a short bit about Seeing Like a State and uh, why the book is important to me, why I think the book is important. And uh, I think for me that that's pretty easy because I actually think that Seeing Like a State is one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, theoretical development in state theory in like the last hundred years. And I say this having read kind of a lot of state theory. Um, A lot of other theory of the state has a tendency to tell you how the state acts, right? It like tells you what the repercussions are, the way that it uses nationalism and uh, it exploits divisions within, within society in order to maintain power for the ruling class. Um, the way that the state is a, is an enforcer of, of hegemonic values, um, the way that it is the it is you know uh, a body of violence that maintains control over a section of land and so on and so on and so on, right? But what James C. Scott is doing is he's telling us why this happens, right? So his concept of like the synoptic view is very, very powerful in not only understanding how the state functions, but I would say really just in understanding how any centralized hierarchical body functions. So with the state, you know, this hierarchical body is what we might call a political body, uh, largely comprised of uh, parliament and uh, other, you know, um, uh, chambers of, of the state. And, this is, you know, it has these very specific needs. It has these very specific functions. Um, and in this process, you know, it's easy to look at the analysis he gives us here and to think that it's only about the state. But really, the things he discusses, these pitfalls, these are the pitfalls of any centralized organization trying to understand a very complex world right? Like each one of us, it it kind of functions in this way. Uh, the, The effects are just not nearly as disastrous. Every time a piece of information enters any body, right, either an individual or some sort of communal body or, you know, some sort of body of governance, it is inherently reducing the complexity of the universe. Otherwise, we would be like, telepathic, right? We'd have to be godlike to know all of the details in the universe. But when the larger and more concentrated the power is in this body that is doing it, the more disastrous that outcome is. So when the state does it, the state has control of the military. The state has control of the police. It regulates the way that the economy functions. It is uh, intertwined with the functions of the economy and in enforcing a rule of law over the people. So when the state reduces the complexity of the real world, it's disastrous, 
This is the this is the problem. When you reduce a complex system and then you enforce your reduced understanding back onto that system, you're going to throw that system into disarray. The system is built on an inherent complexity and you're trying to make it something simple. It's not simple. So the reason I think that seeing like a state is so important is for this very reason. This tool that he's discussing here, or rather the variety of tools that he puts together in this book, are essentially tools that help us understand the disaster of all authoritarian hierarchical structures. They are inherently incapable of understanding the complexity of the real world. And worse, because they have concentrated all of this power, they then go on to destroy that complexity. Now, of course, they are not powerful enough to actually truly change the systems as they stand. The ecology is bigger than any state. So all that happens is damage, breakdown, um, disaster in the case of, say, you know, China trying to go through the Great Leap, um, but also daily disaster insofar as that they enforce upon us a damaging way of life that is not natural to the complex uh, systems that comprise humanity. So yeah, that's what I wanted to say. I wanted to say that this analysis that you've gathered from Scott in this book, or maybe from listening to these podcasts, I want you to really think about how it applies to all of these hierarchical power structures. And that this is not a problem that could ever be fixed by making a better authoritarian structure or, or that, that the ideas of the people in that structure could ever conceivably fix these problems. This is an inherent problem about the flow of information in the universe, about being limited beings, about building limited bodies of information gathering. So that's really what I want you to take away from this. I want you to take away from this that we must build a society where our interaction with the world is complex, a, a world where our future is not determined by some narrow hierarchical body, which inherently attempts to reduce complexity, but instead that all of humanity is called to the fore, attempting to solve complex problems. Humanity, a complex body, may be the only thing that can confront these complex problems. All of our minds together confronting these problems, that is what is needed. We have to unleash that natural human potential and stop waiting for another authoritarian body to come in and solve the problems. They are the problems. That's all for our Seeing Like a State book series. I took about 80 pages of notes in total, including quotes, and I think they're a good resource to reference especially if you don't want to or don't have time to read the whole book. And again, those are in the show description, so check those out if you haven't looked at them already. Uh, thanks again to Nate, Sam, Daniel, and Tura for adding their final thoughts to this conclusion episode. For the guests who weren't able to record their final thoughts for this episode, I really hope you're happy with your choices because you are banned from my podcast forever, and I'm going to tell all my friends that your favorite book is State and Revolution. Finally, Thanks to everyone who listened to this series, uh, which was a lot of work. I will probably be out next week due to second vaccine-itis, but I do have plans for more political economy and anime content in the near future, so stay tuned for that.
If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to check out our other episodes on every podcast platform, including Spotify and YouTube. We would love it if you left a nice review on iTunes, which helps people get the show in their recommendations or tell your friends if you're cool enough to have those. We have a low-key merch shop at Teespring with some cool shirt designs. I know it's not really good to use them, but until there's significant interest in merch, it would be pretty impractical to do a run of merch from a proper printer. So if people are interested, let us know. You can follow us on Twitter at NeighborSciPod. If you want to support the show and help pay our producer, we have a Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash NeighborScience. Our producer for some of our episodes is Casino Socks. You can check out his music at soundcloud.com slash casino socks. And finally, you can check out our website, neighborsciencepodcast.com, which has tags on all our episodes. So if you're looking for a particular subject, it's much easier to find on there than just scrolling through the entire list of episodes in your podcast app. And thanks again for listening. So-